Good morning. So you all doing okay? Hello to the pajama people or wine and cheese people. Um, and just be aware that no matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. So a man is sitting at a bar in a pub in Ireland. It's in the middle of the day. He's the only customer in the place. The bartender has just served him his fourth martini. And the bartender has moved to the other end of the bar to clean glasses and put things up. And the man hears someone say, that's a nice tie you're wearing. Goes well with your shirt. He looks around, can't see anybody. A few minutes later, he hears a voice saying, the cologne you're wearing is nice. Good choice. He looks around again, sees no one. Just him and the bartender at the other end of the bar. A couple of more minutes pass, and he hears, the glasses you're wearing make the features on your face stand out nicely. He looks around, he sees no one. So he calls the bartender down and asks him, what's going on? I say, I keep hearing these nice things being said, but when I look around, no one's there. And the bartender looks down at the container on the counter and says, oh, it's the peanuts. They're complimentary. It gets better. <laughs> so the man turns his, returns his attention to the mar, his martini, and before long, another man comes in and takes a seat next to him. And he, too, orders a martini. He, when it arrives, he toasts the man next to it, sitting next to him, and he looks at him, and he says, uh, you come here often? The guy said, yeah, that's one of my favorite places. Mine, too. You from around here? Yeah, uh, I grew up here. You grew up in Dungannon? I grew up in Dungannon. Whereabouts? On the West End. You grew up on the West End? I grew up on the West End. Where'd you go to school? McDowell. You went to McDowell? I went to McDowell. Who was your first grade teacher? Mrs. Webster. You had Mrs. Webster as your first grade teacher? So did I. About this time, the phone rings. And the bartender picks it up. We can hear, of course, only his end of the conversation. Hello? Oh, hi, boss. No, it's very quiet here. Yeah, just the McDougal twins, and they're both drunk. <laughs> This is embarrassing to admit, but when I first heard the word woke used in an interview on TV, I had to look it up. Um, the usage I heard was something like, so-and-so is such a woke person. Thank God for Google. <laughs> you know what it means, of course. It refers to uh, awareness and continuing awareness about social issues particularly about racial justice. 
at least it gained momentum of this meeting around 2014 and it, out of the Black Lives Movement, uh, Black Lives Matter Movement. But actually the phrase has a very rich and much longer history than that. Uh, Jay Saunders Redding, who is an African-American educator, recorded an African-American United Mine Workers official in 1940 as saying, let me tell you, buddy, waking up is a damn sight harder than going to sleep, but we'll stay woke up longer. And, and uh, the article that I read about this said that this was the key teen slang phrase in 2016. Are you woke? And I'm calling this talk today, Being and Staying Woke in a Stuporous World. Because we can fall into hearing false voices like the first guy, and we can fall into a stupor, a drunken, distracted stupor like the McDougal twins especially about issues central to meaningful living and, and justice issues. Uh, as Sandra Maitre puts it in her monumental book, The Spiritual Dimension of the Enneagram, we fall away so easily from who we truly are. Now, I don't think we should be too hard on ourselves about this because waking up and staying awake is what the perennial tradition is all about. In, it's at the heart of all living religious traditions. Take the Judeo-Christian religion just by itself, and you can see falling away from true identity happening over and over and over again. The narrative begins with the, the Hebrew people being slaves in Egypt. And they experience release from bondage. It's a deliverance so miraculous that they build their entire identity around it. They build their central primary ritual around that of being released from bondage in Egypt. The Passover, the Seder meal is all about that central issue. Time passes. And there is need for prophetic voices to rise up and call those same people stiff-necked because they had forgotten who they were and how they were supposed to live. So the same thing had, had happened or been allowed to happen by the time Jesus came on the scene. The Jewish people now under Roman uh, domination, uh, some of the Jewish religious elite had sold out to Rome. By cozying up to the Roman government, the Jews were allowed to have their synagogue meetings and temple worship as long as it didn't interfere with the empire. Religious scholars studied the minutiae of the law. Some sold out to the Roman government and worked as tax collectors, lining their own pockets along the way while they did. Again, prophetic voices come on the scene. The vast majority of people at the time, not just the Hebrew people, but all people living under the influence of Roman rule were considered to be part of the expendables. The system in which they lived was what the scholars who know about the time said was a very brokered system. And what that means is that you stayed alive by having something of value to offer to the people who were in the group right above you. You kept them in power, they'd keep you safe. 
If you didn't have anything to offer to the people the next level above you, you lived your life on edge. I, I quoted Jackie Lewis last week, and I'm just going to keep reminding you that she's coming here next year uh, to, to speak, to spend time with us. And I quoted her as saying that two of the things that happened very early in the fourth century under the influence of Constantine is that Jesus and the Jesus movement got empired and commodified. And the same thing happened in the Jewish religion that Jesus grew up with. The government called the shots. The religious leaders had figured out a way to stay safe, to line their pockets by making religious rituals, particularly those that had to do with cleanliness, available for a fee. Now, every one of us, whether you went to church or got religious instruction as a child or not, every one of us has grown up with an understanding of Jesus that had been sanitized by the time we got it. Not only was Jesus a blonde, blue-eyed, light-skinned man, but even worse, he was nice. The the major admonition my mother gave me when I would leave the house, now, son, be nice, or even worse, be sweet. <laughs> Jesus was sweet. Jesus and his teachers have been yanked out of their original context and made into meek and mild sayings and things, talking about things that Jesus himself never talked about, going to heaven when you die, having your soul saved, the, the powerful wisdom of Jesus comes out of the actual social and political conditions that he faced, that he grew up with. Let's say that again. The, 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 the powerful wisdom of Jesus comes out of the actual social and political conditions that he faced and grew up with. Both Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr., though they're certainly not the only ones, correctly saw that Jesus did not teach acquiescence to evil, but rather he offers us an example about a way to retaliate to evil that shows evil for what it is. Now, it seems like to me that if we are to follow Jesus, we've got to learn how to do this. So let's have a quiz. It's, it's, this is going to be fun. You just have to figure out what these things are, okay? This is a man overboard. This, this is a backward glance. You get the prize. This is a banana split. <laughs> Scrambled eggs. Okay, how about this one? It's a hole in the wall. 
Although it could be looking down on top of a telephone pole or a really magnified picture of a pencil, that color point. How about this one? <laughs> this is a fish eyes view of somebody standing on a diving board. Now, there, there, I will give a quarter, maybe even a half a dollar. There used to be a whole series of these line drawing puzzles, and I couldn't think of the name for it. It's not Sniglets, it's not, but it's something. I used to have books of them, and I can't find them anymore. They're doodles. I, thank you. So if I look up doodles, I'll see more of these. I'll bring them back next Sunday. Here's one you've all seen. Um, I'm assuming you've all seen it. Anybody not seen this? You wouldn't admit it. You hadn't seen it. It's either an old hag or a young woman. Okay. Lynn can point it out to you later. When... Um, Here's one that I know at least one person in this room doesn't like, but I'm not going to call his name because Richard doesn't want me to do that. So. <laughs> this is Jesus. You see him? Uh, he's looking right at us. This is his chin. This is one eye, another eye, this is nose. Somebody told me that it might be easier to see if it were smaller. That make it better? No. It's hard to see Jesus. It, it, it's, it's hard to stay and... and uh, it's hard to get woke. It's hard to stay woke about Jesus. There's, again, there's not anybody in this space who has not been exposed to the question, what would Jesus do if he were here? And that is an impossible game to play because, frankly, and please don't take offense at this, none of us is in Jesus' demographic. We're not his target audience. We ought to be. But frankly, most of us don't think we need to be, which means that we really do need to be. So the passion of Jesus was to bring light to people living under the power of darkness, the Roman Empire. And most of us pride ourselves on being pretty enlightened people. So this prompted Jesus on one occasion to say, you know, those who are well don't need a doctor. The problem is, or actually it's our hope, is that the light Jesus brought by his teachings is still burning. I don't wonder so much what Jesus would say to us as I wonder what he would think about what we're saying about him. 
It's what we've been saying with slight variation for, for centuries. His goal was to bring fresh air into the traditions of his own religion. And the very institutions that claim to refer him, uh, to refer him as uh, being established in his name don't allow very much fresh air in. Look at where the new voices speaking about Jesus in our culture are coming from. They're not coming from the church, by and large. I'm thinking of things like the Reclaiming Jesus document that I passed out a couple of weeks ago. It's a parachurch organization that brings a fresh perspective on Jesus. I'm thinking about the energy that gets going around the document, the uh, Charter for Compassion, um, I think that Jesus may be from these kinds of things experiencing some emancipation from their very confines that the church puts around him. Now, scholarship is going to continue to help us about the Jesus of history. The fact that we're still talking about him and his message serves to demonstrate that his time stretches well beyond the 30 years that he lived. The title of Christ that's applied to Jesus seeks to capture the faith that from a Christian point of view, the God who filled the space of chaos now fills our space of suffering and conflict and divisiveness and death with the same light and freedom and love and hope. And our task, our opportunity, is to open to the ever-unfolding truth of Jesus that's present in every time, every culture, every life, every place. So Jesus focused on love. The church is focused on Jesus. There's a difference. And I think the best way to honor Jesus is not to be about him, but to be about what he was about. And if we don't do this, no matter how much we know about Jesus, it can't be said that we're very woke about Jesus. So in this effort to reclaim Jesus, we're trying to figure out what it means not just to know about him, but to know about him in a way that affects how we live our lives. And I think that in this regard, the two most easily overlooked or de-emphasized aspects of Jesus are his mystical nature and his political stance. And I don't think there's any way to say that we follow Jesus if we don't work to make these two things part of our lives. Now, um, I hope this goes without saying, and I'm going to leave it up to you to make the application of this to your own life, but Jesus had a profound daily spiritual practice. <laughs> That's true. Go read any one of the narratives, and one of the truest things about Jesus is he prayed a lot. He nurtured his relationship with sacred mystery a lot. So much so that the only thing his disciples asked him to teach them how to do was to pray. My temptation would have been, had I been in their place, 
would say, uh, hey, teach me how you did that wine thing. <laughs> that water to wine thing, I'd really like to know. I, that could come in handy. He also put into action his concern, his love, his compassion for those he called the least of these, my brothers and sisters. And so one way of reclaiming Jesus is for us to do the same. Now, how did this guy do his work? How did he convey the importance of spiritual practice and the importance of his own political understandings? How did he do that? Because if we're going to reclaim Jesus out there in our lives, we probably could learn from some of his tactics. What, one of the things that Jesus did was to see people for who they were. Now, of course, his understanding of who people were was informed by his mystical practice, his mystical understanding of himself and of sacred mystery. And, uh, of course, his understanding of where he lived and where he thought people were intended to live. I'm not talking about necessarily physical circumstances, although those are hugely important. He was talking about people being aware that they live in a realm that is ruled by God, not by Caesar. Those two things that I have been talking about for the past month and will continue to bring up, cosmological dualism and individual salvation, Jesus would not have been perturbed at all about wiping those things off the table. He was clear that the rule of God he had in mind was for a new world right here, right now. And he said it's within you and you are within it. And as for the individual separate self, that was not part of Jewish mentality. It was not part of Jew Jewish thinking. So that when he did teach his disciples that prayer, he didn't say, pray, uh, when you pray, say, our Father, not my Father, our. Well, we become so granulated in our culture, so focused on the individual that we lose the sight of our communal nature. So Jesus understood himself to be a child of God, and as a good Jew, he embraced the notion that all people, rich and poor, sick and well, were created in the image and likeness of God, and he brought healing and wholeness to people by seeing them that way. He would look at someone Usually someone the religious establishment of his day said was unworthy or unacceptable. And, and uh, he would say to them, I see you. I see past what you think limits you and defines you. What I see past what others have said is true about you. I see past that to the real you. And when you have faith in the truth of what I see about you, you will experience the wholeness and the health and acceptance that really matters. We humans have built such wonderful cages for ourselves, such wonderful prisons. We, we long for people to see us as we are. And yet at the same time, we fear being seen for the truth we think we are. 
I cannot tell you how many times in my career I have heard somebody say in one way or another, if you really knew me, you wouldn't like me. And Jesus would say, horse feathers. I do know you and I love you. It's a very tiring dance. You know, one of the things that gives me a great deal of comfort in my own spiritual journey and about the future is the fact that sacred mystery, divine presence, the ground of being, whatever word or phrase you want to use for God, is not that which is not understandable. Mystery is that which is endlessly understandable, infinitely knowable. And this is an important truth to keep in front of us. We never finish. Now, Christianity is in trouble today, <clears throat> serious trouble. Actually, it's the church in trouble. And, and it's in trouble because it misunderstands, for the most part, and in most places, its core message or what its core message is intended to be. And uh, Matt and I may talk a little bit about this uh, after because this is what the film American Heretics was so much about. The church took a wrong turn around the time of the Enlightenment, actually in the early part of the fourth century, but really at the time of Enlightenment, which I think is really an odd label to put on that period because it was a period of such darkness. The wrong turn resulted in people locating religious faith in what they believed, not what they did. Consequently, it came to be commonly accepted that the opposite of faith was doubt. I, I mentioned to you last week the work of Karen Armstrong. Some of you went to, were fortunate enough to get to go hear her when she was in town last week. She's the, the woman who is the animating energy behind the Charter uh, for Compassion. And in one of her books, The Battle for God, she details how struggles developed in all the monothe monotheistic religions about right beliefs. And, and some of these beliefs, now just get your head around this. Some of these battles for beliefs that people had, they had people who said they believed in the pacifist whose name was Jesus killing other people who also said they believed in the pacifist whose name was Jesus. That happened. Your, your belief differs from mine. mine. You're dead. Now, this kind of violence continues to this very moment. In some parts of the world, it's really violent, deadly violent. And in other parts of the world, it's still deadly violent. We just do it with words and judgments. We dress it up in things like racism and homophobia and sexism and the like. You know, when it comes to something like homosexuality or, or, or abortion, none of, neither of which Jesus ever talked about, but... I would love for the church to provide a place where people could engage in honest dialogues about these matters. I would love for the church to have an honest dialogue about human sexuality. 
not homosexuality or heterosexuality, just human sexuality. How do we understand that? How do we honor it? How do we live it out? I would love to have an open discussion about a consistent ethic of life. But what I have experienced is that real dialogue with these matters is so difficult because we easily slip into having competing egos about who's right. So it's virtually impossible in our society not to confuse faith with intellectual assent to certain doctrines or require belief about some moral position. And yet to do that is essentially contradicting the teaching of Jesus. It creates a counterfeit faith. And it also ends up putting the ego and its need to control as the primary reference point. So just to be sure, to be clear, for Jesus, the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith for Jesus was anxiety. Why are you afraid? You don't have any reason to fear. You're in the sacred heart of God. What could happen to you? Authentic religion and real spiritual faith lead a person to be open, not closed, narrow, humorless, rigid, and angry. Authentic religion and real spiritual faith lead us to being woke in a stuporous world. Now, following Jesus, which I'm attempting to focus on, is not a matter of believing the right thing, but rather it's a matter of promoting and practicing the love and nonviolent justice that Jesus taught and practiced. So if we're going to follow Jesus, really follow him, I think there are three things that are going to be essential for the journey. One is that we have to be radically honest, and the other is that we have to be fearlessly open, and the other is that we have to have a willingness to give up control and the need to be right. I'm sure you've all mastered all of these three things. So in the days ahead, uh, we're going to be dealing with some really wonderful, exciting, loving, liberating topics that may not initially feel like loving, exciting, liberating, wonderful topics. Because we're going to talk about racism, we're going to talk about white privilege, sexism, homophobia, xenophobia, that's prejudice about people from other countries. We're going to talk about integrity and honesty, they're not necessarily the same, and so forth. Now, the message of Jesus has been called from the very beginning, good news. That's what the word gospel means. But... It wasn't considered good news by those in power who first heard it. It was only heard by good news by those who were at the bottom. That makes it hard for us to hear because that's not where we are. Now, I just want to be clear, and I, I'm being repetitive, but um, I have spent decades teaching about the meaning of Jesus' teachings and deeds. And what I'm adding to that, not taking away from that, is an emphasis on what is the meaning that this can create for us. Jesus went about creating meaning, and that's what matters most in life, is when you get to the end of your days, that you have led a meaningful life, all right? 
So the way Jesus created meaning for people in his audience was to sneak powerful truths to them in really cleverly disguised stories, like the McDougal twins. Now, even if you keep them at arm's length, there's no way you can come away from Jesus' stories without the conviction that he was teaching that God's desire for all people, especially the poor and the disadvantaged, the outcast of society, was that they experience love, compassion, and justice. Nobody would disagree that that is what Jesus taught. Everybody should be treated justly. So as we go forward, I just want to issue one word of caution, and that is beware of certainty. I'm certain of that. So, <laughs> so I'll tell you a story Jesus told. Now remember, these are sneaky stories. But we have heard them so often, so long, that, oh, God, they're so sanitized for us. <clears throat> a man has a hundred sheep. And one of them went astray. And he leaves the 99 on the mountain and goes out to seek the one until it is found. So here's my way of seeing Jesus in his teaching. Jesus was like a Mozart or a Bach or Beethoven. And he composed music. And other people came along and took the music and they played it the way they wanted to, or why they, with their artistic bent, all right? So that um, they would tell it to a com one community differently than to another community. Am I making sense to you, what I'm saying? Um, this is the story that the scholars that I trust the most say is probably the core of Jesus' teaching. But this story appears in other places in the gospel, like in Matthew, Luke, and in Thomas, played differently. Matthew plays it differently than Luke. Luke plays it differently than Thomas. And um, so This is the way that Thomas plays this story. God's imperial rule is like a shepherd who had a hundred sheep. One of them, the largest, went astray. He left the 99 and looked for the one until he found it. After he uh, had done that, he said to the sheep, I love you more than the 99. Now, there is no debate among scholars that this is a Jesus story. The difficulty comes in trying to figure out what in the world does he mean? Because, again, we have this need to be in control, to be rational, to say what we think the story says. And so it doesn't have a real opportunity to lead us into this land of radical wonder and real transformation about how we are to conduct our lives. So, again... Drop cosmological dualism. Drop individual salvation. Get rid of those. Jesus was not interested in that. He was not interested in making people good so God would like them. He was not trying to get people into heaven. So why did he tell this story? Now, whether you grew up in church or not, there is no way you cannot have some association of sheep and shepherds with God and Jesus. It's just impossible. They're going to be on the scene next week when we get into Advent. Even though, well, I'll forget to say that.
The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. We grew up with that. So Jesus is depicted as the, the, the good shepherd, cradling the sheep in his arms. Sometimes the sheep is draped around his neck. He is referred to as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The image is drawn, by the way, from Exodus, the Passover story. But this story Jesus told is not a sweet story. He didn't tell Sunday school-type stories. He was interested in getting people woke. Otherwise, the system was going to crush them. And he cared for the people. He had compassion for the people. Now remember, the guard is just as much in prison as the prisoner. So let's let him out. So in the early history of Judaism, when Jews were nomadic tribes that roamed the area, sheep and shepherding and herding were central to their life. But by the time Jesus comes on the scene, there's been a shift. Agriculture now is the center, not sheep herding. And, and, and so the shepherd had become part of the marginalized in society. I guess to bring it into our language, the shepherd was the illegal immigrant. He was doing a forbidden activity, not forbidden legally. It's just nothing no respectable person would do. You wouldn't want your child to grow up to be a shepherd. It's just not a positive thing. Now, the, the listeners would know that there was a positive image associated in the Hebrew writings and rituals, but man, that was long ago. That was way back then, right? And you got to be practical now. How often I heard that when I first got involved in civil rights in Tennessee in the 60s. I know you're right, you got to do that, but, I, but really, you should be practical, got to be reasonable. Got to be where the people are. Just be patient. <coughs> Further, this shepherd is stupid. He doesn't take into consideration what we call comparative value at all. He's going to risk 99 sheep for one? It's not a good way to do business. So the listener hears the story. And the challenge is, who am I going to identify with? The 99? The one, not the shepherd. No. Oh, Jesus loves to turn things upside down, doesn't he? You know the story of the laborers in the vineyard. Some worked all day. Some worked just a few minutes. The ones who worked just a few minutes got paid as much as the one. And it, oh, boy, his audience got upset about that. Again, there's no way to run a business. There's no way to treat people. So almost at every turn in his teachings and behavior, Jesus is challenging those at the top in terms of their position, their possessions, their power, and most of us are more in that position than we are in the position of the marginalized. 
So the teachings of Jesus offered people a choice. How would the world look if the values of love and compassion and justice really ran the show, or how would the world look if we keep doing it our way? So here's the meaning of this story. It is the marginalized who seek out and find and save the well-off and the respectable. You get it? It's in doing the work of justice that we find our salvation. It is in connecting to the marginalized, to the dispossessed, to those at the bottom that we experience our freedom. Because we give what we have to create inside, which is love and compassion. Can't give what you don't have. Now, Jesus had several, several uh, teachings um, like this. And, and you know them all. A woman has ten coins. She loses one, sweeps her house, finds it, and, and invites a whole neighborhood in to celebrate. A man had two sons. He loses one. And eventually gets him back. And he has a huge feast to celebrate. They are rejoicing because they know it is them themselves who have been found by sacred mystery. And, and to the religious leaders of his time, Jesus kept saying in one way or another, and this is why they executed him, he kept saying to the religious leaders, it wasn't the marginalized that had him put to death, but those at the top, he kept saying to them, I'm doing what you ought to be doing. I'm doing what is your real function. I am telling these people at the bottom that we need them in order for us to be complete. And religious leaders didn't want to hear that because <clears throat> it meant going out and bringing somebody in who, well, you know, the reasons we give. I took a course with Harvey Cox when I was at Harvard. It wasn't a New Testament course because Harvey Cox was a sociologist. But he took a, a, a story from the Jesus narrative and used it to make a point. His lecture, I think, was on empathy that day. And it's a story that you have heard. Um, it's, it's a wonderful story. Jesus feeds the multitude with five loaves of bread and two fishes. That's one version. Uh, this version is told six times in the gospel. I mean, this story, this kernel story is told six times in the gospel. Um, this is a painting by uh, Bernardo Strozzi. Actually, it's um, one of the better ones, I think, is painted in the 17th century. So you know the story. This huge crowd has come to hear Jesus, watch him do his thing with the people, and the day wears on. The disciples want to go home. It's past lunchtime. The disciples finally get Jesus' attention. Uh, we're hungry. So are the people. And Jesus said, well, feed them so we can keep doing this. And they said, you crazy? We don't have anything to eat. If we did, we'd be eating it. Jesus said, feed the crowd. And they said, with what? 
There are no food trucks. Uber Eats doesn't deliver this far. The nearest food court is several miles back. Jesus said, surely you can do better than that. And one of the disciples said, well, there is a lad here with five loaves and two fishes. But what is that in the face of such a mob? And Jesus says, bring them to me, which they do. And Jesus blesses the food, and there is enough for everybody to eat, and food is left over. Folks, this is about as good a story as you can get. And it's not, oh, look, Jesus did a magic trick. There's something much, 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 much more going on here. It's a fascinating story. You don't put a story in the gospel six times if it's not really important. The language used in the story is the same as in the Eucharist. You're aware of that. He took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, he blessed it. Same Eucharistic language. And in two of the stories, he did this event, and then he crosses over the lake to the other side, to the foreigners, we would say. Oh, it's a great story. Um, the implications for social action and inclusion in the story just amazing and also overlooked. I never heard any of that growing up, going to church. So after talking about the story for a while, uh, Cox asked people in the class, and I want you to, to think about who in the story do you most identify with? How many of you identify with a hungry crowd? And a number of people held up their hands and comment, uh, Cox commented on that. And, and elaborated on it and because, as I said, the class was about empathy and people could identify with being hungry. How many of you identified with the disciples? And again, hands went up because everybody knows what it's like to be in a meeting like this and hope it's over and we can go home and all that. So more elaboration and comments. How many of you identified with the young lad who had five loaves and two fishes? Again, a few hands went up. Cox made his usual erudite sort of comments about that. One student identified with a fish, <laughs> but I didn't want to hold my hand up. <laughs> and when he was done commenting on the story and the variety of responses, he said, how many of you identified with Jesus? And not a hand went up. And Harvey Cox said, why? Why is that? Isn't that what Christianity is supposed to be all about? How about you? How many of you identified with Jesus? The best way to honor Jesus is not to know about him, but to be what he was about. Working at that will keep us woke in a stuporous world. So no matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and I hope you stay for the discussion that follows. Thank you.